This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, NPR, The Progressive, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The Colbert Report, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users, also from The Colbert Report. moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. It came out last week that the Canadian Boy Scouts have had thousands of cases of child molestation over the past 40 years. The reporter I saw made an interesting point, that jobs like being a scoutmaster tend to attract pedophiles because they have easy access to children. It's much more difficult to ask a kid to go camping in the woods alone with you if you're a 45-year-old man if you don't have on a funny uniform and some badges that say you know how to knit. Other jobs also attract these sleaze balls, like gym coach or priest or birthday party clown or being a puppet. And I'm not saying all the people in those professions are pedophiles, only that those positions attract pedophiles. You know, for every 12 Kermit the Frogs you get, you're gonna attract one Snuffleupagus. It's just the way it works. Similarly, I rail a lot against the sickening greed of corporate CEOs. And there's a reason most CEOs make disgusting decisions that most of us wouldn't be able to stomach. Think about the type of people that job attracts. Think about who rises all the way up the ranks at a big corporation. It's certainly not the guy who cares the most about workers' benefits or about the last 12 square feet of territory the spotted owl is hanging on to. It's not the vegetarian who lets people merge in front of him on the highway. It's not the guy who thinks the meaning of life is to live in the moment and enjoy our shared humanity and turns off his cell phone every weekend so as to get in touch with his fucking spirit animal. Nope, the guys or girls who rise to the top of massive corporations are the ones who put profit above all else, above American jobs and workers' health, above the environment, and way above his spirit animal. I mean, let's be honest, no one ever got promoted at a huge corporation because they figured out how to get slightly more expensive materials made by proud, hard-working American adults instead of Chinese toddlers. These people get Get promoted because they find a way to save a company a few million dollars a year by laying off the workers who are most likely to complain about their cancer instead of sucking it up and walking it off. So this means the men and women who end up running the big corporations are fucking psychopaths. Greedy, hungry, nasty psychopaths. That's who scores that job. That's who that job attracts. That job attracts those type of people like a moth to a flame, like a former child star to a rehab, like an obese 10-year-old to a stand with fried Oreos, like a 21-year-old girl on her birthday to a bathroom floor to Okay, fine. I'm, I'm exaggerating. Only 90% of CEOs are psychopaths. The others are just run-of-the-mill, standard edition, plain vanilla assholes. That's the system we've created.
Don't you wish the nightly newscasts were brave enough to point out that economic inequality in the United States isn't such a big deal? Well, you're in luck. Public television's nightly newscast decided that point of view deserved its own segment. In August, the NewsHour did a pretty good report on inequality. So maybe it was the need for balance that provoked a September 21st follow-up, which consisted of economics correspondent Paul Solman talking to an old friend of his, American University professor Bob Lerman, who thought that the previous piece way overstated the problem. How so? Well, according to Lerman, a lot of wealth is unaccounted for when we talk about the wealth gap, specifically Social Security and Medicare. To make their point, the two visit, we kid you not, a nursing home where older people go to enjoy their wealth. As Lerman put it, quote, take a lot of the people right here at this nursing home. Medicare is a source of wealth that finances their stay here, close quote. Solman seemed to see the logic in this, telling a woman at the home, Medicare is like a stash of wealth that you're now drawing on. Well, it's hard to imagine comparing assets like a house or cash to the health care one receives or might receive one day, much of which is derived from taxes you've paid over the years. I guess by that logic, someone who gets really ill and requires massive amounts of care is actually striking it rich. The piece closed with Lerman advising viewers that we needn't be so concerned about inequality. Well, thanks for that. The CEO of uh, General Electric is Jeff Immelt, and he's going to go on with Leslie Stahl and uh, tell us how we should all be rooting for giant corporations like the ones that he runs. Really, let's let him make the case. I want you to root for me. You know, everybody in Germany roots for Siemens. Everybody in Japan roots for Toshiba. Everybody in China roots for China South Rail. I want you to say, win GE. Do you not see any reason that maybe the public doesn't hold American corporations up here in the I highest? think this, this notion that it's the population of the U.S. against the big companies is just wrong. Oh, it's just wrong. He doesn't know why you don't root for him when he's such a good patriotic American. You know how much GE paid in taxes under uh, the leadership of Jeff Immelt? Zero dollars. In fact, they got uh, a tremendous amount of money back in tax rebates. Why? because they uh, work with the government in figuring out the best loopholes possible, and they use them. They use offshore subsidiaries. They hide their uh, money in places like the Cayman Islands, and then every once in a while they push politicians to do what's called a tax repatriation when they bring that money that they've been hiding from offshore back here, and instead of paying 35%, last time they did it in 2004, they paid 5%. And you know how they rewarded us, that great patriotic GE? They fired tens of thousands of uh, workers after that. But, but wait a minute, it was supposed to create jobs when we gave you that huge tax break. And what did it do? No, you laid off jobs. In the, uh, recently, in the last couple of years, GE has outsourced tens of thousands of jobs. They're like, we're creating jobs in India, what more do you want from us? How patriotic of them! And how dare we question them? Do you know that they root for Siemens in Germany? 
and they root for all those different companies in communist China, but yet you folks here can't appreciate the great munificence of Jeff Immelt, who won't pay any taxes and in fact takes money back from you and outsources your jobs and lays you off, and you still won't thank him? Oh, you are so ungrateful. I feel so bad for Jeff Immelt. I want, you know what, I look at that and I think, GE, win! How do you say that on TV, man? Do you have no sense of what's going on in the country? I guess you think you can fool everybody. You think it's, yeah, I'll just go out here and say, and uh, people go, yeah, GE, yeah, they're American, right? Yeah, America, yeah, flag, yeah, oh yeah, GE win, yeah! <laughs> he is the top jobs advisor for Barack Obama. They're outsourcing jobs. They're not creating any jobs in the United States. The top advisor on jobs? No, our whole government, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. It's been bought, man. That's why they're doing this movement in the first place. Lock, stock, and barrel. They bought every part of it. But by the way, they're now thinking of doing repatriation again, even though the last time it cost us hundreds of thousands of jobs, and it cost us over $300 billion. They're going to do it again. Bipartisan proposal by John McCain and Kay Hagan, so-called Democrat of North Carolina, where they're going to uh, give the companies another enormous tax break. Because that's what they do. They're, they're, they're bought prostitutes of corporate America. It's the Onion Radio News. A CEO's marital duties are outsourced to a Mexican groundskeeper. This is Doyle Redland reporting. As part of the growing trend toward replacing U.S. workers with foreign labor, the marital duties of United Carborundum CEO Howard Reinhardt have been outsourced to his Mexican groundskeeper, Jorge Escobedo. Reinhardt's wife, Melanie, is very pleased with her new service provider. Jorge offered me a very attractive package, and I decided it was in my best interest to act. In this case, the use of highly skilled foreign manpower makes perfect sense. Howard Reinhardt was unavailable for comment as he was scouting locations in Oaxaca for a boron nitride factory. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News.
No one wants to be in last place, not on the playground, not on the racetrack, and certainly not on the socioeconomic ladder. And yet when people are near the bottom rung of that ladder, they actively oppose programs that could help the people below them even if those programs could help them too. That's according to a new study from the National Bureau for Economic Research. It's a phenomenon called last place aversion. And one of the study's authors, Ileana Kuzemko, is here to explain it. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Explain to me, in just in layman's terms, what is last place aversion? So it kind of is what it sounds like. It's the, the basic human need to avoid feeling like we ourselves are in last place. Or maybe put a bit more negatively, it's our need to feel like there's at least one person we can feel superior to or, or look down on. I think a way of understanding it or thinking about it is the sort of back to childhood, that visceral fear that children have of being picked last in gym class or last at recess. You know, we were sort of thinking that whatever it makes us have such a visceral fear of, of being picked last in gym class probably doesn't go away just because we grow up. Where, where did the idea for this study come from? I think it, this idea has been in my head for a while, and in part from sort of reading historical accounts of the United States, uh, especially sort of the, the rise of Jim Crow. So C. Van Woodward's uh, study on the rise of Jim Crow, for example, argues that this was something that was a lot more important to to relatively poor Southern whites than it was to sort of the plantation class. And uh, these institutions, you know, the way I thought about it was were really important for, for, for relatively poor whites so they could have permanently and sort of officially uh, a group they could always look down on. Tell me about the study that, that you conducted. What happened? The heart of the study are two experiments that we performed in laboratory settings with uh, students and also members of the community um, who volunteered to be part of these studies. So in the first experiment, people are randomly assigned a dollar amount, and they're separated each by one dollar. So one person has one dollar, two dollars, three dollars, up to six dollars. And at that point, each player is given an extra two dollars, but they can't keep it themselves. So they have to either give that extra two dollars to the person immediately above them in the distribution or immediately below them. And the important thing to realize is that because everyone's separated by one dollar, giving to the person below you means that he would leapfrog over you in the distribution. So he would be a higher rank than you would be. So what happens is that most people tend to give it to the person below them. They can't keep the money themselves. So no matter what they do, they're walking out with the same amount of money. But when you start to get toward the bottom of the distribution, and specifically the guy who's second to last, he's almost half the time chooses to give, he or she chooses to give the extra money to the person who is actually richer than he is, as opposed to giving it to the person below him. And, you know, we would hypothesize because it's so painful to have that one person below you jump jump over you. Do you see any real-life examples of this? The real-world example that we looked at was the minimum wage. We sort of oversampled people who were making relatively low wages and asked their opinion about whether the minimum wage should be increased. And most people said yes. In fact, like if you look at any national survey, the minimum wage is a very increasing the minimum wage is a very popular policy. Mm -hmm. But there was a real a real spike downward in the support for increasing the minimum wage among people who are making just above it. You know, there could be any number of things going on, but this is certainly consistent with their not wanting the the, the, you know, just the couple of people below them who are still making the minimum wage to uh, to have the same wage that they do. Do you think that, that the results of your study will affect the way we talk about public policy? I've certainly seen the paper linked on right-leaning blogs sort of saying, well, the poor don't want redistribution either. So 
this is great. Hmm. We should never have redistribution, which I think is a pretty narrow way of looking at it. But uh, I think that another way of looking at it might be recognizing that there is a lot of status anxiety specifically for people who are sort of lower in the distribution and to be sensitive to that and maybe not being so sensitive to that undercut support for redistribution among people who rationally we think should be supporting it. Ilyana Kujemko is an assistant professor of economics at Princeton University. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Demons, they have left you. You are not left behind. Corporate media's incredibly uncritical boosterism of so-called free trade deals has been remarked on many times and continues to be remarkable. What else but blind faith would allow a story to carry a line like this one in the October 12th New York Times about textile industry opposition to the New Deal with South Korea? Quote, the production of shirts and sheets has shifted steadily from the United States to countries with lower cost labor. Economists argue that this process strengthens the economy as companies and workers shift to more productive and lucrative kinds of work. Close quote. Of course, if the Times has evidence of laid-off textile workers' mass movement to more lucrative work, they're sitting on the scoop of the century. Elite media's presentation of deals like those just passed with South Korea, Colombia, and Panama consists of a barrage of unchecked claims. This time around, those featured funny numbers from proponents who spoke of increased export growth without talking about imports, kind of like giving half a baseball score, and misleading context, like setting the deals within a storyline about jobs, when there's no evidence such deals promote them. Then you get a line like that in the October 13th New York Times, once the deals have passed and have been heralded as a rare moment of bipartisan accord, that, quote, the passage of the trade deals is important primarily as a political achievement and for its foreign policy value in solidifying relationships with strategic allies. The economic benefits are projected to be small, close quote. Now, some would call that a bait and switch. For the corporate press on trade deals, it's standard operating procedure.
leave it to a Democratic president to push through free trade agreements that hurt American workers but help U.S. multinational corporations. Bill Clinton did it with NAFTA, which cost us 680,000 jobs, and now Barack Obama's done it with Colombia, Panama, and South Korea. The big companies wanted these trade agreements to go through, not the American people, nor the people of Colombia, Panama, and South Korea. The one with Colombia is especially troubling because of that government's brutal repression of trade unionists. And in Panama and Colombia both, these agreements will push millions of people off their lands who won't be able to compete with U.S. agribusiness companies, so they'll end up in city slums. And the agreement with South Korea will serve to further hollow out our own manufacturing base. As Bernie Sanders noted yesterday on the Senate floor, over the last decade, more than 50,000 manufacturing plants in this country have shut down. Over 5.5 million factory jobs have disappeared, and we now have fewer manufacturing jobs today than we did in May of 1941. Bush couldn't push through these agreements. He tried and he failed, but Obama succeeded because the Democrats have capitulated once again to corporate power and have bowed down once more to the false idol of free trade. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. It's the Onion Radio News. A day job officially becomes a job. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Another human dream was crushed by the uncompromising forces of reality today when the restaurant day job of 29-year-old former aspiring cartoonist Mark Severson officially became his actual job. The creator of the self-published monthly photocopied mini-comic Dish Dog Days summed it all up this way. This is it. This is my job. I'll never forget that exact moment when I stopped being an aspiring underground cartoonist and became a... A restaurant worker. Severson now has the same look of defeat as his friend Ray Landry, who finally accepted the assistant manager position at Video Hut after the recent rejection of his fourth screenplay. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. The 20% of Americans who make the least money in the country have not had a great 30 years. Uh, since the late 1970s, the poorest Americans have seen their overall income go up just this much. 
which is not much progress in the richest country on earth. Uh, and that's sort of the big picture here. Look, over, over the last 30 years, the more you need your income to rise, the less it rises, right? So that's the bottom 20%, the second 20%, the middle 20%, right? The, the, the smallest gains in income over the last three decades have been among those who most need a gain in income. The people who least need it are getting the biggest boost year after year. This is new out today from the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, on what American money has been like in the last few decades. And this is a problem. I mean, the people who nobody needs to worry about because they are doing better than anybody else in the country, they are the ones who have seen their income rise the most. They are the ones who've been helped the most. Wait, hold on, what's that? I'm being told this is not the whole graph. This isn't the whole graph. So that's, we've got the bottom 20%, the next 20%, the middle 20%, the next 20%. So this, this part here that shows the richest people in the country, that's not the whole top 20%? That's not the whole thing? Okay, this, this part here that shows how much better off rich people are, uh, how much better off rich people are doing in terms of their income, that apparently only goes up to the 99%. We are missing the top percent. The graph is not complete. So if you want to know how the richest 1% of the country, the people who least need a pay raise in the country, how they've done over the last 30 years, we actually have to break that out separately because it distorts all these other numbers. Can we do that? Can we do that? Oh, yeah. Okay, whoa. That's just the top 1%. Income going like this in general, that is already a problem because that means that poorer people are doing worse over time compared to richer people. And that's already a problem. That's already backwards. But this, this isn't just a problem. This is actually a whole new idea. Okay, graph time. It's actually get up and run to the big graph time. May I stand here? Okay. Ezra Klein made this. And this explains the whole big new idea in America. This is actually a map of the whole in the American dream. This is, this is actually a map of the whole the American dream fell down, never to be heard from again. So, so this section here, okay, this section here, the late 1940s around the end of World War II, okay, to the mid-1980s to Ronald Reagan time. We got a, a, a lot of new economic policies starting Ronald Reagan time. That time, from about the end of World War II, through to Ronald Reagan time, that is the American dream. This distance here, this is the American dream. Because this blue line is median income in America. And yeah, it wobbles a little bit, but it's, it's basically going up. It is on a fairly, fairly steady climb. And this other line, this one, this line is the income growth of the top 1%, the richest people in the country. Now their income from the end of World War II up until Reagan time, is, is growing, but it is not growing as fast as the income of the rest of the country. And that's good, right? They're already doing great. They are the top 1%. They are already the richest people in the country. During the people that we can call, during the period that we can call the American dream, the richest 1% of the country is still rich and in fact is getting richer over time. But they are not pulling away from the rest of the country. In fact, everybody is moving on up together. Yay for rich people and yay for everybody else too. But then starting here, starting in the mid-1980s, starting in Reagan time, it flips around. And the people who are already the richest 1% of the country, they cross over and they take off running. Getting richer way, way, way faster than everybody else, leaving everybody else behind. This is new. The red line being on top of the blue line, this is new. This is a new thing in America. The American dream was 
anybody can make it. That is no longer the dream. If you already have made it, sure, you can make it to the stratosphere. But you are, if you are not already up in that top 1%, you are not going anywhere. That is new. That's not the way America used to be. And you know why that is and you know what that is? That's policy. Policy matters. The CBO, in mapping this change over the last 30 years, where the top 1% richest people in the country have doubled their share of our national income, explained today that what has done this is policy. What happened to the American dream? Well, over these past 30 years, quote, the equalizing effect of federal taxes was smaller. Taxes stopped equalizing the benefits of living in our American economy and instead just started shoveling all the benefits up to the people who already had the most money. And the private sector followed suit. Frankly, executive pay went through the roof. Workers pay, not so much. And again, this is not something that has been happening gradually over the the lifespan of America as a country. This is something that's been happening gradually over the lifespan of me. This is something that has just happened in the last generation. This is a new thing in America. And if you ask Americans, Americans do not like it. The New York Times CBS poll says two-thirds of Americans want wealth, wealth and income, to be distributed more evenly in our country. 66% say they want that. Incidentally, there's also some really, really partisan news in that poll as well. When you ask Americans about whose interests the Obama administration is acting in, it's pretty evenly divided among people who think he's favoring the rich, favoring the poor, favoring the middle class, or treating everybody equally. But if you ask Americans that same question about Republicans in Congress, you get a very, very strikingly partisan answer. Only 9% of people think that Republican policies help the middle class. 69% of people say Republican policies, the policies of Republicans in Congress, help the rich. And again, the rich are doing great, really great. The rich are doing greater than great, greater than they've ever done, ever. So today, waking up to this new data in the newspaper, the Republican Party put out its congressional budget guy, Congressman Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, famous for his kill Medicare budget, right? Which a huge majority of Republicans voted for in Congress. To say that they put Paul Ryan out today on the day that this news breaks. To say that Democrats right now pushing more populist economic policies. Democrats wanting to repeal the Bush tax cuts for the richest people. Democrats, including President Obama, criticizing Republican policies for just helping the rich. Paul Ryan out today saying today that with that kind of rhetoric, Democrats are dividing the country. Sowing social unrest and class resentment makes America weaker. The president is barnstorming swing states, pushing a divisive message that pits one group of Americans against another on the basis of class. It is true that Americans are divided on the basis of class. The class division is between the top 1% and everybody else. But saying that, describing that, naming that truth, making a picture of it, saying that maybe we should try to fix that, that is not what has created the division. This division is real. It's new and it is a shocking, shocking affront to the American dream. You know, a a Goldman Sachs guy got arrested today. A guy who used to be a Goldman Sachs board member uh, surrendered to the FBI today. He's connected to the guy from that billionaire hedge fund who got sentenced to 11 years in prison this month. There is a crackdown on illegal activity on Wall Street right now. 
but it's not a crackdown on the Wall Street activity you're thinking of. Uh, this guy who turned himself in today, he says he's not guilty. Uh, the Galleon billionaire hedge fund guy, that guy who just got sentenced, they got in trouble, uh, or alleged trouble as the case may be for the guy who turned himself in today. But they got in trouble for an insider trading scheme. The same thing essentially that sent like Martha Stewart to prison, right? But the overall accountability issue of not just Wall Street crimes like we have always known, but the overall accountability issue of what Wall Street did when they blew up the entire economy, when they caused the man-made recession that we are in, which came from nowhere but Wall Street and the banks, that nobody has gotten in trouble for. That has all been negotiations and settlements and bailouts and back to bonuses. The only investigation into whether or not the biblical levels of irresponsibility on Wall Street might also have been criminal, the only investigation of that is being done by the states, by these crusading liberal attorneys general, like Eric Schneiderman of New York, who we had on the show last night, and also Bo Biden, the attorney general in Delaware who we hope to have on the show tomorrow. These are the guys who are trying to figure out if anybody else ought to be dragged off of Wall Street in handcuffs for what they did to this country. Not for some typical Wall Street insider trading, white-collar crime, but for what happened at the end of the Bush presidency that blew up this economy and from which we still have not recovered. But so far, that hasn't happened. And so you've got these two huge things in American politics, these two basic truths. We are grinding through the worst thing we have been through since the Great Depression. And it was man-made. It was man-made. It was a catastrophe caused by specific people screwing it up, knowingly, recklessly, in a way that did not hurt them at all, but really hurt us as a country. We've got that. And at the same time, the mega class that those guys are from, they really did shrink the American dream down to the size where they could drown it in a, bath, in a bathtub, and, and then they drowned it. Economic policies that benefit the very, 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 very richest people in this country allowed the very, very richest people in this country to run off with all of the spoils in this entire past generation, leaving everybody else behind. Republicans who still support those, poli those, those policies for the very, very richest people, they say now that uh, two-thirds of Americans say something is wrong here, Republicans are now saying that if you think something's wrong here, you ought to shut up and stop being so divisive. Be happy with what you've got. We need, to keep, keep, we need to keep helping rich people and maybe help them some more. Democrats, of course, are left trying to figure out how to politically capitalize on this, how to take the side of the 99%, since Republicans are taking the side of the 1%. But frankly, the biggest issue facing our country is not the politics of this. The biggest issue facing our country is whether this can be fixed materially. There's reason for hope and reason for concern in the latest New York Times CBS poll. One reason for hope is that 66% of the American public feels that the money and wealth in this country should be more evenly distributed. 
So yeah, let's redistribute wealth and redistribute income. These are vastly popular demands, and they may get more popular after people see the new study showing that the top 1% ballooned its income by 275% from 1979 to 2007. No wonder the Occupy Wall Street movement's spreading so fast. And speaking of Occupy Wall Street, 43% of Americans said they agreed with it versus only 27% who said they disagreed. Another heartening statistic reveals that 69% of the public think the policies of the Republicans in Congress favor the rich. Imagine that. A plurality also thinks that Obama's policies favor the rich, though that figure was only 28%. The reason for concern, though, is that 89% distrust government to do the right thing at a time when we desperately need government action to solve the economic problems facing us. Republicans have so sabotaged every effort by President Obama to aid the economy that many people are concluding that government can't do anything good, like redistribute wealth and income. This pessimism, while understandable, perfectly serves Republican purposes. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. There is a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. Okay, what, what do you think is the best thing, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to, to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is this, is this the, that hard of a question? Is it that is. What? It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right. Well, you know what? None of us know what the, what what's good about this show. What None we know is have... we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. It is no secret that Barack Obama is destroying this country single-handedly. And I'm pretty sure the other hand is doing something gay to your gun. <laughs> the good news is, according to Rasmussen, if the election were held today, Barack Obama would lose to Herman Cain. Between now and next November, the only thing that could go wrong is if something goes right. That's why I'm giving a big tip of my hat to the Tea Party Nation. On Tuesday, the for-profit grassroots group emailed all 30,000 of its members asking them to take the following pledge. I, an American small business owner, part of the class that produces the vast majority of real wealth-producing jobs in this country, hereby resolve that I will not hire a single person until this war against business in my country is stopped. <laughs> Amen. Folks, with Americans hurting, something must be done. That's something? Nothing. <laughs> but sadly, nothing may not be enough. So to ensure Obama's defeat, I call on all Americans not only not to hire each other, but to actively drive the economy off a cliff where we will plunge down to the canyon floor of liberty. <laughs> now the short-sighted out there will say, oh, but Stephen, this is my business. I wanted to do well, and I may have to hire people. Well, stop being so selfish. We're talking about the future of this country. Success is not an option. Americans have always achieved greatness by working together, and now we must unite again to ensure a brighter tomorrow by working together to ensure a shittier today.
need to hurry As long as I'm with you We'll take it nice and easy And use my simple plan You'll be my loving woman I'll be your loving man We'll take the most from living Have pleasure while we can and now is the time on MSNBC where we praise CNN. Well, we, we praise somebody who used to work for CNN. In 2005, the Chamber of Commerce held its annual press conference to say what they were going to work on for that year. And at that press conference in 2005, the head of the Chamber of Commerce walked up to the microphone and said this. Elliot Spitzer's approach is to walk in and say, we're going to make a deal and you're going to pay $600 million to the state and you're going to get rid of this person and that person. And if you don't do it by tonight, we're going to indict the company. The head of the Chamber of Commerce continued, quote, it is the most egregious and unacceptable form of intimidation we have seen in this country in modern times. Elliot Spitzer, the most intimidating thing in all of America, in all of modern history. Out of everything, it's Elliot Spitzer. Uh, to the Chamber of Commerce, it really was. By that point in time, Elliot Spitzer was on a tear. He had figured out that Wall Street firms were telling suckers all over the country to buy stock in certain companies. Not because those companies were a good thing to buy stock in, but because Wall Street was essentially taking money from those companies in order to say that. Give us your investment banking business or whatever, and yeah, we'll tell suckers all over the country, running some retirement fund somewhere or something, we'll tell suckers everywhere to buy your stupid stock. The Wall Street firm gets whatever business that lousy company wants to kick back to Wall Street. The company gets people to buy its lousy stock, and the people who get stuck paying the bill is like your Uncle Jim, the toll taker in Cleveland and his pension fund that they thought they'd invest this year with all those smart young guys on Wall Street. It was a total scam. And Wall Street was so confident they were never going to get caught for it that they would openly talk about these scams they were pulling in company emails. Elliot Spitzer was New York's attorney general at the time. He used his power as attorney general to get copies of these firms' super incriminating emails. And then when the firms came to him wanting to settle this quietly, we'll just pay a fine, just don't tell anybody we've been doing this, don't hurt our reputations. Instead, Elliot Spitzer called a press conference and released the emails publicly. Right, so, so like, here's the Merrill Lynch report saying some internet company called LifeMinders, which doesn't exist anymore, LifeMinders is, uh, is, quote, an attractive investment. And then here's the Merrill Lynch email from earlier that month where the same guy says, quote, I can't believe what a piece of... Uh, thing that rhymes with bit, that thing is. So attractive investment or piece of thing that rhymes with bit. That was for life minders, right? So it's one thing that they're marketing to the public. It is another thing that they are saying among themselves. You remember infospace.com? Uh, that same firm, Merrill Lynch, had infospace up on its, uh, on its favored 15 list. These are our top 15 recommended stock buys. And while they had it on their favored 15 list, Spitzer had the Merrill Lynch internal email calling infospace a, quote, piece of junk. They did the same thing with a firm called GoTo.com, where they hyped GoTo.com. Buy this, buy this stock. Hey, suckers in Topeka, buy this stock. Well, here was the internal email at Merrill Lynch saying, oh, what's so interesting about GoTo.com except for the money we're getting from them for us being their bank? The analyst responding by email, nothing. So yeah, Merrill Lynch wanted to keep all of this stuff quiet. 
They wanted to pay a little fine and make all this stuff go away. Elliot Spitzer instead dragged them through it publicly, exposed what they had been doing, and then he did not enter into negotiations with Merrill Lynch about how to make this thing go away. He called Merrill Lynch and he told them, you know what? It's $100 million. It's a $100 million fine that you're going to pay. No negotiations. I want this settled tonight. That was the negotiation. The giant brokerage house, Merrill Lynch, today agreed to pay a $100 million fine and change the way it pays its stock analysts to settle charges those analysts misled ordinary investors. New York's Attorney General Elliot Spitzer had charged Merrill Lynch with rating some stocks much too highly so they could get investment banking business from those same companies. Spitzer said today the settlement will change that. So Merrill Lynch paid the $100 million. And the uh, piece of rhymes with bit, uh, piece of junk, nothing analyst who was tied to all of these things they got caught for, that analyst got charged with securities fraud, ended up getting banned for life, banned for life from ever working in the securities industry again. He also had to pay a $4 million fine personally. Uh, you know where that guy ended up, incidentally? You ever seen that website Business Insider? That's that guy. Uh, he doesn't work on Wall Street, though. As I said, he's been banned for life. Uh, this guy, uh, different guy altogether, this is Bernie Ebers. Bernie Ebers is now federal prisoner number 56022-054. According to local reports at the time, when Bernie Ebers drove himself to prison, when he had to report to prison a few years back, he drove up to prison in his Mercedes. At one point, Bernie Ebers was number 174 on the Forbes 400 list of the richest people in America. Bernie Ebers owned things like the biggest ranch in Canada. Bernie Ebers owned more than a half million acres of timber in Mississippi and Tennessee and Louisiana and Alabama. He actually bought all that half million acreage at once. He bought a swath of Alabama and of all those other states all at once. He was able to do that because Citigroup gave him a mortgage. Citigroup gave him a mortgage for a billion dollars. Billion with a B. A billion dollar mortgage. Now, Bernie had this sweet deal going on with Citigroup where he would do all of his company's business through Citigroup, right? And in exchange, Citigroup told all the suckers in the country that they should buy stock in Bernie. They also hooked him up with sure bet guaranteed money deals. They'd let him buy stock in companies that are about to go public. It was basically guaranteed money. But Citigroup would give Bernie a special deal, special access on those stocks, on that essentially as guaranteed money. Now, if, if you were a normal customer of Citigroup, like, you know, hypothetically, say the, the Bakersfield City Employees Retirement Fund, you didn't get a deal like that. You didn't get in on those guaranteed money stock deals. You have to be a guy like Bernie, because Bernie is kicking back. So as they are telling all of these suckers in America to buy stock in Bernie, even though they know that Bernie's kind of a fraud and his company's kind of falling apart, they're also giving him this sweet deal on these IPOs. They're also giving him a billion-dollar mortgage. And what does he want the billion-dollar mortgage for? It's so he can cash out. So we can put all of his money into a nice hard asset like, say, Alabama, so he doesn't have to sell off his soon-to-be-worthless stock, which, of course, would alert all the suckers in the world that his soon-to-be-worthless stock was soon-to-be-worthless, that it was about to tank. But now Bernie's a prisoner. His earliest release date is July 2028, at which point Bernie will be 87 years old. The guy at Citigroup who hooked up Bernie with the free money hot deals in those companies, those free money deals that nobody else could get because they weren't kicking back money like Bernie, that guy did it for Bernie. He did it for a bunch of other companies, too. Uh, now he doesn't do it for anybody. 
Here's the SEC press release where they announced that Jack Grubman will be censured and permanently barred from the securities industry and will pay a total of $15 million to settle charges against him. Barred for life. The case against Jack Grubman, the case against Bernie, ultimately did get settled at the federal level, as you saw there. But where it started uh, was with Elliot Spitzer. Now to more corporate leaders on the hot seat. New York's attorney general is suing five telecommunications executives who he's accusing of earning millions in personal profits in a corrupt stock deal. Now that was just a couple of months after the Elliot Spitzer press conference that exposed the um, piece of rhymes with bit emails, right? Same year. He was on a tear. Elliot Spitzer also made public the allegations that ratings for companies were being traded for getting the children of Wall Street tycoons into good preschools in New York City. That's a deal. Uh, there were the charges he brought against AIG and Martian McClellan and the, McClellan and another insurance company called ACE. Uh, charges saying that they were tricking people, essentially, into thinking that those three companies were competing with each other to give customers the best deal when really they were sort of working it amongst, them, amongst themselves in order to divvy up the business. The nice detail in that set of allegations was that the dad ran AIG and the other two companies in this supposed collusion deal, the other two companies, Marsha McLennan and ACE, were run by dad's two sons. Nice. It is now impossible to Google Elliot Spitzer. Uh, and avoid getting drowned in things about his CNN show being canceled and his prostitution scandal and his wife going to the press conference where he announced that he was resigning because of the horrible prostitution scandal, right? But, but if you can, um, if you are an advanced Googler enough that you can, say, find information about Rick Santorum even at work, uh, or you know how to set date parameters on your Google search, you can set date parameters so that you can avoid all of the post-attorney general stuff about Elliot Spitzer. And if you do that, what you get back to is the absolute terror with which Elliot Spitzer was regarded by people on Wall Street who were not used to getting caught for criminal behavior. Publications like The Street would just lead their articles about Spitzer with stuff like New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, otherwise known as Wall Street's Dragon Slayer, wielded his legal sword today. And of course, that is hilarious in light of the prostitution scandal now. But at the time, there was nothing hookery about a statement like that at all. Wall Street was being perp-walked for stuff they were used to getting away with. They were being perp-walked by a crusading attorney general who they hated for it. It is hard to overstate the magnitude of the betrayal. People who work their entire lives to save, to invest, to pay for their children's education were being told to invest in stocks that Merrill Lynch knew were going to decline in value. The sad thing is that for many, many years, people on Wall Street have known this has been going on. Nobody has done anything about it. There has been massive wrongdoing. And uh, we're going to act aggressively to, to address it. Retail investors know there is no guaranteed return in the market. They know there is risk, but the one thing they deserve is honest advice and fair dealing. And then he became governor of New York, and then there was the hooker scandal, and then there was the horrible resignation, and then there was the exile, and then there was the show on CNN that did really badly, and then he finished at CNN, and then what, what became of Elliot Spitzer after that is still sort of yet to be seen. But in the time... That, 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 that Elliot Spitzer has been going through all of that in his post-attorney general life. Bad behavior on Wall Street blew up the whole American economy. And at times, it was deja vu all over again, just without Elliot Spitzer in the role of prosecutor. Look what your sales team was saying about Timberwolf. 
boy, that timber wolf was one shitty deal. Mr. They sold that. Mr. Chairman, deal. you didn't tell him you thought it was a deal. Well, I, I didn't say that. No. Who did? Your people internally. You knew it was a deal. And that's what your and again, email I, shows. I, I, Should Goldman Sachs be trying to sell a deal? Well, can you answer again, that one? Can words, you answer that one? Yes or no? Democratic Senator Carl Levin, who by all accounts otherwise never really swears in public, uh, and you, as you saw there, nailing Goldman Sachs for having, in this case, uh, not sold stock that it knew uh, rhymed with bit, uh, but selling mortgage deals. Big piles of mortgages that should have never been written as, and selling them as if they were gold. Knowingly inflating the value of those things, which not only screwed over individual investors who they were selling them to as if they were valuable, but th- th- that fed and blew up the housing market and the American economy with it. They weren't just touting these mortgages to people. They were actually taking bets against them themselves because they knew what they were worth. And they knew it was a great bet to take against them. They knew they were, forgive me, they knew they were crap. They knew they were going to fail. They were set to make money when they failed. And they were selling them as if they were gold. And that is something very simple. That is fraud. That whole game did not cause collateral damage like the comparatively now rinky-dink bankruptcy of old Bernie's company. When Bernie's company went bankrupt, it's called WorldCom. At the time, it was the largest bankruptcy the country had ever seen. But looking back at it, that's rinky-dink compared to what we went through because of how Wall Street behaved after Bernie. The collateral damage after this time was not a company called WorldCom and everybody who was suckered into investing in it. The collateral damage this time was our country. That one Goldman Sachs deal that Carl Levin was swearing about made it to that Senate hearing. Charges were brought. It's still wending its way through the courts. But as for the overall fraud and recklessness and criminality on Wall Street that blew up Wall Street and blew up the entire American economy at the end of the Bush administration, the recklessness that necessitated the bailouts and that created the recession that we are still in, ProPublica did a good rundown on where are they now this week. What's happened to those folks? Who got frog-marched off of Wall Street for all of this? Well, among the mortgage originators, quote, few prosecutions have been brought against subprime mortgage lenders. A Department of Justice investigation into alleged fraud at Washington Mutual closed with no charges this summer. A criminal investigation into activities at Countrywide, quote, fizzled out earlier this year. Deutsche Bank is still under investigation. Well, how about the people who turned American mortgages, American homes, into casino chips? Quote, overall, the banks and individuals involved in these deals haven't been convicted on criminal charges. The civil suits against them have produced fines that aren't very big compared to the profits they made in the lead-up to the financial crisis. Okay, how about the CEOs of the big investment banks? A probe of Lehman Brothers, quote, stalled this spring. Merrill Lynch was sold to Bank of America, quoting, uh, quoting ProPublica here, As for the executives who helped crash Merrill Lynch, they walked away with millions. Some still hold senior positions at prominent financial firms. Republicans want the next presidential election to be decided on the basis of whether or not the economy is bad. Because the catastrophe of Wall Street exploding in 2008 was so bad that you're pretty much guaranteed the economy is still going to stink next November. So Republicans want that to be the basis on which people vote. On the other hand, Democrats want the presidential election to be decided based on the question of who is taking the side of the American people? Who's taking the side of the 99%? Since the Republicans are very happily identified with the 1%. They are happy to be seen as representing not only the richest people in the country, but Wall Street specifically. I can't believe-
hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. The Congressional Budget Office looked at, and it's nonpartisan, so these are very respected figures. Both sides uh, uh, quote the Congressional Budget Office all the time, as nonpartisan as it gets. Uh, and in fact, they use IRS numbers so that there's no arguing with it, right? Well, they just came out uh, with numbers showing uh, how this country has changed and how uh, income inequality has ridden, arisen in this country between. Uh, 1979 and 2007, about a 30-year stretch. 07 is the last set of numbers that they had to work with, right? So when you look back, uh, what has happened to the different uh, brackets in this country? Well, when you look at the poorest 20% in this country, over that 30-year period, their income has risen, but by only 18%. And in fact, in that time period, the share of the country's income that the bottom 20% has has gone down from 7% to 5%, right? So meaning they're doing okay over a 30-year period. I wouldn't brag about 18%, but as a, compared to the other classes, their numbers have gone down to, uh, to the other brackets, okay? Uh, how about the middle of the country? Well, when you look at the middle 60% of the population, their income has risen 40%, but their share of the income has also gone down from 28% in 1979 to 25% of the nation's income in 2007. So somebody's getting rich, it's not these guys. Well, let's go to the top um, 19% and see if how they have done. Well, they've done very well. They've got 65% income increase overall, and their share of the income has gone up from 43% to 53%. So they've done much better compared to the bottom 80%, right? Well, we left that 1% there, right? The top 1%. Well, how do they do? Their income has risen 275%, nearly tripled. It, their share of the income in the country was 8% in 1979. It has more than doubled in the last 30 years to 17%. So they've got a bigger and bigger share of the income. Now, how did this happen? It wasn't an accident. It wasn't that the rich all of a sudden worked harder and got richer. No, they manipulated the tax code. For example, they lowered taxes on capital gains and dividends. What is that? That's investment income, right? So now, if you're a plumber, you don't have a lot of investment income. If you're Steve Forbes and your dad left you hundreds of millions of dollars, you have a lot of investment income. So when you lower the taxes for investment income, the rich get richer. It's not an accident. They did it on purpose. I can show you all the rules and regulations that were changed to benefit the rich. For example, unlimited 
uh, risk-taking by the banks makes the banking executives richer. So then the top 1%, well, shockingly enough, have 275% gains. Did you do as well? Of course not. Your share of the income overall went lower. Their share of the income more than doubled. And that's how it works. In fact, look at this chart. It gives you a sense of it. Uh, here are all the different gradations from 1979 to 2007. Okay, look at that. Uh, not bad. Uh, it's kind of stable, stable. Uh, for the top 20% getting better, and then the top 1% through the roof. Do you see what people are upset about? And again, it's not because they're upset that the rich are doing better because they worked harder. They're upset that the rich are getting a bigger and bigger share of our income because they fixed the rules. So they go to the government, they donate a little bit. Yesterday we showed you a chart that showed that investing in a politician gets you 22,000% return on your investment. The best investment you can make. Look, I'll give you one more example. There's a tax bracket called uh, carried interest. And it only basically applies to hedge funds and private equity managers. These are the people who manage money for the richest people in the country and in the world. It's not even their own money, so it is not an investment. Because that's the excuse they always use for uh, dividend and capital gains. They say, well, it's an investment, job creators, etc. No, they're using other people's money. It is simply income that they're getting. Nonetheless, that was lowered to 15%. So the richest hedge fund guys, private equity managers in the country are paying 15%, lower than the average American, on money that they are transacting for other rich folks. That is simply income. How did they do that? Well, that's because some of the top hedge fund managers are some of the top contributors to both Republicans and Democrats. They fix the rules so that it is to their advantage and the results are stunning. And gee, I wonder why we've got an Occupy Wall Street movement. Jay, this is Ken in Chicagoland. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the, the back and forth you had with Jimmy Dore about the Pat Robertson and Alzheimer's uh, issue. Um, I think you were 100% right, and it's a point of view that I, that I think really needs to be uh, uh, given more of a, more strength behind it and, and more people doing it, doing this, which is just admiring the nuanced point of view. And if Pat Robertson, for all the evil things he says, out of nowhere says something nuanced and it's related to the real world, a difficult problem. I mean, Alzheimer's is such an awful thing for anyone to deal with and for them to ask a spiritual leader what they should do and for him to give them a difficult but, you know, sensible answer, whether it's right or wrong, it certainly wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't refer them to some Bible verse. Uh, that isn't really applicable, he said, she, you know, he gave a real answer. And um, I'm so glad you complimented that. I think none of us are ever, and I, and I think a lot of progressives, you know, it's not an equal playing field where if we say if we give a little bit and we let, you know, small-minded people give a little bit, we'll all meet in the middle. Because often we're actually trying to solve problems uh, independent of our own ego and certain closed-minded people, whether it's taxes, about God, they're just 
saying what they're taught to say by habit or what feeds into their insecurities. And so, um, so it's not an equal thing. But if we can compliment a Pat Robertson on, you know, giving an, an answer to an important question that relates to the real world, then without insulting him, you know, then it, it highlights how idiotic the rest of the stuff he says is. And often it's best to just leave it at that, you know, give a kind word and let the evident truth be evident, you know, which is most of the other things a man like this says are evil and misguided and thoughtless and mind-numbingly insensitive. And so if we can have that kind of respect, at least find where the positive is and compliment him on it and thank him for it and encourage him to do it again, you know, then we're closer. Then maybe some people are a little more apt to be thoughtful. And that's where the rest of us are when we have a problem. You know, I don't have enough money. What should I prioritize that I'm paying? What's worth going into debt for? Uh, should I sell my house? You know, should I get career training? Whatever. We're, we're making real, just in our personal lives, we're making real decisions based on the input coming in. And, you know, if, if John Boehner and, and Michelle Bachman could manage to do that for five minutes, we'd get a couple of bills that actually help people. And so, Let's compliment reasonable thought wherever we can. Uh, thank you so much for your show. What a gift it is to the Internet. So thank you. Hi, this is Chris in Middletown, New York. And I just want to say in relation to what I saw in Oakland, California, when the police bring bodily harm to peaceful protesters, they no longer serve and protect liberty and the people they're supposed to work for. When the police assault peaceful protesters, in ways they would not like brought on their own families, then it's time to disband those corrupt enemies of the people and replace them with honorable citizens who truly respect the law. Police officers that trample, suppress, or injure citizens who speak out, who people to injure people who protest abuse in a peaceful fashion, are no longer our police, but enemies of all that America stands for. To Oakland Mayor Gene Kwan, I say your police force is a disgrace. It's time to rein them in and support the 99%. Thank you. Hi, Jay. It's Michael from Glen Burnie. Um, I have not listened to your latest episode yet, but I did see that one of the voicemail callers was talking about the human microphone. And uh, something popped into my head, and I just wanted to tell you before I forgot about it, because it seems like it could be a cool idea. Uh, I don't use the Twitters, so I apologize if this is dumb. But uh, my thought was, why not convert the human microphone into Twitter form? And somewhat along the same lines as retweeting or the donate your account kind of thing, have a specific time that people you know, either donate their accounts so you can retweet through them to a specific person. Uh, or maybe they do it manually. Or maybe I'm sounding like an idiot. I don't know. But uh, the idea is that instead of, you know, spreading the message as it were, you're actually getting however many people uh, uh, sign up for that to mass send the same exact message, the same tweet to specific people and companies as a way to spread the message. I don't know. It sounds interesting to me. Uh, like I said, I don't, I don't do the Twitterers, so uh, maybe, maybe it's not a good idea. But uh, just thought I'd put it out there. Thanks for everything you do. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So Michael from Glen Burnie there just invented what's called the Tweet Bomb. Nice case of great minds thinking alike there as he somewhat predicted it has uh, been invented already. The, the first time I heard of it, it was when Jank Uger from the Young Turks was claiming to have invented it, but I can be pretty sure that it existed before <laughs> before he came up with the idea. Um, but yes, it, it, it does exist. You can definitely take part in um, kind of mass Twitter actions where lots of people get together and send the same message to you know some uh, company or, or target all at the same time. And if you're interested in Twitter activism, I would definitely check out Actly. That is A-C-T dot L-Y. So that is the entire website is act dot Lee. And, uh, and they are all about Twitter-based petition campaigns. And, uh, and, and those get used all the time and, and have been, you know, have proven to be very effective. So if you want to start a, uh, you know, a Twitter petition campaign, that's where I would go if I were you. So now, not that I don't have more uh, brilliant words of wisdom to share with you, but, you know, i got to save it so you guys keep coming back. Uh, so that'll be it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple of members. Stephen V signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on May 4th and has stuck with the show since then. And Rebecca B signed up also for a leftist membership, uh, but paid for a full year in advance on August 9th. So huge thanks to Stephen and Rebecca and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Uh, you, you, you make the show possible for yourselves and everyone else else who, who can't afford a membership um, and so on. So huge thanks. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading individual clips through your social networks. Uh, all the buttons to do that are super simple right in the show notes there. Pick out your favorite clip and send it around to your friends. They will thank you for it and then they will find this show and become a fan and get plugged into progressive media and become giant liberal activists themselves and then we'll take over the world. It'll be great. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor